Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. Hi, this is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Conversation of the Week. Today, I'll be chatting with Blaise Desjardins, who has been principal cello of the Boston Symphony since 2018. In this month's conversation, you'll hear Blaise describe some of the valuable lessons he took away from his studies with Bernard Greenhouse, as well as details about his approach to practice and how his thought process in the practice room and on stage are different. He also admits to not being much of a scales person and shares insights on how he was able to get into a good headspace for the principal audition and not feel too much pressure going into it. I saw something that you said in an interview recently that I found really interesting. If it's okay to quote you back to yourself, you said something like, uh, even though feeling emotions yourself can translate naturally into your playing, it's not as reliable, in my opinion, as knowing how to play beautifully in a consistent manner, no matter how you feel yourself on a particular day. Do you remember saying something along those lines with regards to what you learned from? I do, and yeah, and I still believe it, yeah. (laughs) I'd love for you to expand on this a little bit, because when I was a student, I think I just assumed that feeling the music would naturally come across the right way to the listener, to the audience. But of course, when I listen back to recordings of myself, I'm surprised at how often that actually wasn't the case. Uh, so I'd love to hear you say more about the, the technical side of being more musically effective and, and how you might work on that. Well, I mean, I, I think it's something I discovered when I started studying with Bernard Greenhouse. Um, he talked about that a lot. And so, in, in fact, it's a lot about details, you know, how how you shift, how you shape your vibrato, what you're doing with your bows. I mean, all those things that might happen naturally when you're really feeling it and it's translating into your instruments. Well, you know, you don't want to be able to do it only the day you're feeling it. You know, you have to be able to do it consistently. And, you know, the way things happen physically is what you're doing physically. It's not really how, how you're feeling. So I think I learned a lot from for that from Bernard Greenhouse. And then I think it's also something that's, that applies very well to, to orchestra auditions because that's a very stressful day and and there are probably more people who play worse on audition days than people who play better. I don't know if anyone plays better. Um, but so I think if you can rely on all those technical things, um, then you just you just repeat them. And then, of course, you want to connect with the music and you want to, to be expressive with the music. Uh, but if you already know what you're going to do physically, then you're in a pretty safe place where nothing is going to sound really bad, you know, or not beautiful. Um, and I think that's something I feel when I when I give lessons. I often feel like 
that the students don't really know what they're doing with their left hand or know what they're doing with their bow. Uh, whereas usually I have made my choices and I think, you know, a lot of performers do that. They make their choices in the practice room and then they just keep them consistently in performances. I'm assuming that doesn't just mean, you know, etudes and scales and that sort of thing, but it actually has more to do with how you practice the music or the excerpts themselves. Yeah, I mean, you know, it starts with like, what do I want to do with it? What do I, what do I want people to hear? And actually, especially preparing auditions, I would record myself a lot. And sometimes you record yourself and you thought you were doing something and then it doesn't come across. So then what can I do so it actually comes across? And so, you know, usually like, I feel like phrasing, I mean, that's something I learned from Greenhouse, that the two hands work together. So maybe if you have a crescendo, your, your vibrato is going to blossom and at the same time you're going to add some bow speed or, or just pure bow um, and so those things you can you can keep repeating over and over uh, as you perform and so I, I think that that's what's helping me be somehow consistent you know in my playing it's never going to be 100 percent but I, I think it's it's yeah it's much safer than having no idea what you're doing basically <laughs> right. So I'm curious then how that translates on stage, because it sounds like there's, you know, it starts with a clear idea of how exactly you want something to sound, whether it's an excerpt or a piece, and then a lot of experimentation, a lot of recording in the practice room to make sure that it's coming across and figuring out, you know, what am I actually doing physically when it sounds the way that I want? Um, what happens on stage? I mean, are you still kind of in the same headspace or... Like, how do you then produce that in a pressure-type situation? Well, I'm still trying to understand how that works, as many people are, I think. I mean, I think when I'm on stage, ultimately, I, I do want to connect, you know, with the emotions, and that's that's really what I'm trying to do. Um, but I feel like um, usually if I practiced well, if I prepared well, all the physical stuff is sort of automatic, you know, it's it's a second nature uh, so it's going to happen. So, for example, if I, you know, prepared Brahms before in a concerto solo, if I pre prepared it well, my body distribution is going to be the same. My vibrato shaping is going to be the same. My dynamics are going to be the same. And then hopefully you have these little extra things that that connect with the music. But already all the technical things I did at home should sound beautiful, you know, to the audience. And so that that takes some pressure off because even if I play what in my opinion would be normally, it should be good enough, you know, for a concert. Um, so yes, I do want to go for emotion in the concert, but I, I feel pretty secure with my preparation beforehand. And I know I can rely on that. Um, and the other thing, of course, about performing live is, you know, what happens to your body when you're performing and you're getting nervous. And, you know, that's something also I learned over time. Um, you know, I know my shoulders go up and I get tense. And so I remember when I first started thinking about this, I had to consciously like bring my shoulders down and, and, and try to breathe better and bring my back back and all those things. And then, you know, now I, I am a bit more used to it. But so the, the number one thing for me is not to get tight in performances, to always be relaxed uh, and not, not to get in my own way, which is easier to say than, than to do. But that's those are sort of my two things. I feel like if I can be relaxed and if I prepared well, it should sound okay. So then you don't have to worry about as many of the details that you would in the practice room and, and kind of trust things to work out a little bit more. Right. And that's, that's, you mentioned the word detail. And so that's my challenge because I'm very, very detail oriented. 
And so I realized if I'm still detail-oriented what I perform, it's not helping. <laughs> so I, I do have to be in the moment and, and focus on what I'm doing, but I also have to like just enjoy the big picture. And, and so I, I think it's, it's part of, I think every performer, you know, especially if they feel they're, they're struggling with, with performance on stage should like assess what, like, what are my strengths and what are my weaknesses um, and then work on the weakness and try to make it a strength, you know, if you can, uh, but really try to balance your playing because none of us are, are perfect. And maybe there are some people who feel great on stage all the time and perform amazing all the time, but I don't think I'm one of them. Like I, I try to get a certain level. <laughs> Not to put you on the spot, but I'm I'm curious about level of detail in the practice room, whether it's something you're working on now or recently, and, and maybe this ties into the kind of work you did with uh, Mr. Greenhouse. But yeah, I'd love to hear maybe an example of, of the level of detail, the kind of decision-making process maybe you go through, just so it helps to, to kind of give a picture of this to folks who might be wondering how much detail is enough or what's too much and so forth. Um. Well, I mean, you know, there's detail in the bow. So, for example, is is your bow? Does your bow have one bow speed from the tip to the frog, or are you going from the tip to the frog? Which part of the bow are you using? Um, and then the vibrato. What kind of vibrato are you using? Uh, first of all, can you have a variety in vibratos? Because I feel like a lot of people actually don't. Um, so, can you have a variety of vibrato? Can you change the shape of your vibrato within one note? Um, how you connect one note from the next, both in the bow and in the left hand, which is one thing, for example, trying to play legato, something legato, you know, everyone obsesses with the bow, and then of course, you know, it's important. But then what do you do with your left hand? Are you going to have this big shift, you know, moving your whole hand is going to create a gap in your left hand? So if I have something legato, I'm going to try to have legato in the left hand too. That's things are always connecting from finger to finger. Um, and then, of course, the dynamics, um, and then trying to achieve all that being relaxed. Um, and I think as far as auditions go, or even an important performance, you know, I, I like doing a lot of small, a uh, lot of short repetition times. So it's not about like doing three, four hours in a row. It's like, I mean, I do usually 45 minutes, you know, practice sessions. But then even if I let go of the cello and then like, Twenty minutes later, I come back in and I do five minutes, uh, you know, cold and try to play good right away, and then do that a couple of times. And then this is the same same thing. It gets your automatic system going. Um, but I I do feel like you know sometimes I and I I wonder like I feel like there are a lot of details that people don't pay attention to and that they matter. Um, so all those things you can do in the practice room, but then you have to know how to look for them. And I feel like before I met Bernard Greenhouse, I didn't really pay attention. Sometimes they played great, sometimes they didn't. And only when I started playing with Sim, I felt like I could raise my level sort of consistently and, and be touching musically, not, not just good. You know. Is it that he kind of highlighted these questions you weren't asking yourself that led you to kind of open up the door to more things? Or how did that happen, that, that transition? Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, I feel like literally he was showing me, well, you know, here I ship like this and, and it sounds better. And, and it, it's true, like, it, it's just more beautiful. And he was a very touching player, so I wanted, I wanted to know, like, how he does it. Um, and I felt when I was taking lessons with him, I, I mean, it was sort of an out-of-body experience because the way I was playing, I didn't know I could play that well. 
But I think it's because he gave me the tools, you know, to play beautifully. And I, I think it's easy to get either lost into like a side where technically it's what we call perfect, which is usually not missing notes, which is not really perfection. Or other people get lost into the, the super emotive side, like they're super convincing on stage, they're very emotional, and it's like, wow. But then maybe if you're going to listen without the video or without looking at them, then maybe you won't be as convinced. So for me, I mean, I only care about what it sounds like. So yeah, that's something I discovered at that time, and, and that that's why I end up having to practice, because there are all the details to figure out. But also a lot of them become automatic with time, you know, the, the, the way you match your, your bow arm with your left hand and the vibrato and all that. After a while, you don't really think about it as much. Yeah, you know, that's interesting because I'd like to think, looking back, that I was more cognizant of, right, because there's left-hand ingredients and then there's right-hand or right-arm ingredients. And you could adjust variables in each side that then create this different mix of possibilities. And I'd like to think that I was cognizant of both sides separately and then together, but I don't know that I was, you know what I mean? I might've just sort of thought of one side or the other and sort of let the other side be on autopilot. Um, Cause that obviously complicates things a lot by having to think yeah. about the two different sides and how they factor together. Is there a way that you practice that? Cause I'm thinking, you know, on one hand, if I start thinking about my left side, then I'm going to start not being able to pay attention to my right side. If I go there, then I suddenly am not paying attention to my left. Like how does one kind of balance that and not go crazy trying to, figure it all out that's a good question um well i mean as first of all i think you can practice things separately i think that's okay you know it's okay to do bow exercises it's okay to do left hand exercises to do barrow exercises for me it starts with the simplest questions like how how do i do a beautiful crescendo how do i do a beautiful diminuendo? usually what happens with me is that if i have like say a beautiful nuendo am i i'm gonna start with a very generous vibrato Pretty, pretty large and wide, and then I, when I get towards the end of the diminuendo, it's going to be smaller uh, and maybe more relaxed. And then the opposite, if I do a crescendo, the vibrato is going to start small and open up as I get louder. Those are pretty standard things. Um, and, you know, I, I believe in that type of playing, but I don't know, a lot of people play with only one vibrato, and, and you know, some of them make carriers, so I'm sure it, it's fine. But to me, it's miss, it's missing something emotionally. Because if you listen to a singer, I mean, I don't think any of them is going to use the same vibrato for the whole phrase. It's never the case. Uh, it doesn't work physically, I think, for them. Um, so, yeah, I think you can practice each side separately. And then, you know, start with something basic, like do a shifting exercise with, you know, hairpin, crescendo to the top, you do down, or the opposite. Um, then take an easy melody and decide some dynamics and try to shape with that but yeah i think basically if you can trust all that you know small exercises and you can put it into bigger pieces and then just have it being a part of your playing you know for any, anything else that you do so i don't know if this is what you were describing or not but it but it almost sounded like you're thinking of musical skills or musical gestures in the context of not just pieces that you're working on, but even maybe like etudes or scales? I mean, is that the sort of way that you approach scales as well, maybe? Uh, I'm not a, a big scale person. <laughs> 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 so I, I wish I could I could be. But um, 
I, I mean, at, at, yeah, I mean, for scale or even even open strings or I think it's funny because basically the, the only scale I did regularly was like a, a very slow scale, like like uh, 60 per beat, four notes, uh, four beats per, per note. Um, and I feel like maybe that the skill I, I use the most now in my job is this playing, you know, long, you know, legato melodies. And that sort of helped me for that. But you can definitely work outside of, of, of the pieces because I think the pieces can be overwhelming. You know, there's a lot of things to tackle on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm sure there must be etudes. I mean, etudes help, you know, I think I remember my teacher in Paris, Philippe Muller, like if you, if you played a concerto, he would find like the etude that was featuring the one technical thing that you would encounter in that concerto. And so I think that makes a lot of sense, you know, once again, to practice something outside of the piece. But I think uh, as far as melodies goes, you know, you can even invent your own melody or play random notes. Uh, I, I think it's it's a lot about experimenting and 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 you know li- li- listen to what you like. If you end up you know loving people who play with one vibrato, great. And I personally I try like playing with a faster vibrato and I I can't. And um, and I creep around greenhouse try to relax my vibrato back when I studied with him. So yeah, find what works for you and then and then try to do it. But the practice room is like the safe space, right? That's where you can try anything and everything. You can be as crazy as you want. You can be over the top. Um, you can do anything, and and then make your choices, and 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 then get on stage and just play what you decided to play. Yeah, and I love that you uh, kind of admitted to not doing a ton of scales, which I think is awesome. And and I've talked to other musicians too who aren't necessarily super 100% gung ho with scales all the time. You know, they do them, but um, but they they almost like find their own ways of integrating fundamentals work into their practice that may not be a particular scale method. Yeah. So I was curious, like, what do you do instead of scales then? Like what sorts of exercises do you find most useful for yourself at this point? Uh, I've been doing more shifting exercises because that's usually what I encounter in my job is like big shifts. Yeah. So that I, I do love, like for channel, I love the, the 40 variations for the bow by, by Sevzik. That's, one thing I really like is to get used about different different bow, bow strokes and, and articulations. I mean, usually if I you know if I if it's a day I'm practicing seriously, I'll start with like open open strings and then some of those exercises. But I never go too long. Like I I, I don't think I can really go past like half an hour or forty five minutes of technique because then also now I have to you know prioritize my time. Like I don't have a lot of time to practice, and I do have a lot of pieces to prepare. So I just have to learn those pieces too, just, you know, just for my brain. But yeah, you know, I think a lot of, I, I talked with a lot of, you know, very good cellists who don't really do scales more, and I think they have the same reasons. They have contrarians to prepare and, and and they don't have, and you know, they did their scales, you know, 10, 15 years ago, and they know how it goes. There are a couple other things that I've learned about you by stalking you on Google. Um, <laughs> one is, you do a lot of arranging and, and composition um, and you have your Opus cello um, business where you have all these different cello centric arrangements and combinations of things, which I think is really cool. But it also seems that you are interested in, in music outside of the classical realm as well. I mean, you guys did a a Metallica arrangement at Fenway, which I thought was cool as well as the, the national anthem. 
how does that all fit together? I mean, because it, it seems like there would need to be some time, you know, split across more different things, given the additional interests that you have um, aside from your orchestral job. Like, does this take a different kind of practice or? Uh, no, I mean, the, the whole arranging thing came sort of need of, out of the need because so we, we started this Boston Chilo Quartet group out of the orchestra with three colleagues. And, you know, I really wanted us to have a repertoire that's unique to us. And then I thought the best way to do it is to arrange for us. And I had done some when I was in Paris and I had a Chilo Quartet there. So I already got into it. And so I spent a lot of time. And of course, at the time, I just had my, my section job. So it was a bit easier, you know, to, to, have, to have time to write all this. And then, you know, I realized, you know, I, I do care in general about cellist playing together. And then people were starting to ask me about my arrangements. So I figured just having a website would be the easiest way to tell, well, if you, if you want something, why well, read on the website and what you can have. If it's not, you can't have it yet. Um, so that's sort of how it started. And, and then, it, you know, it went very well. Um, at first it was just downloads and it was prints. And our first album just came out. But I think... I think for me, it's 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 fun to arrange. It, it really gives me a, a really deep understanding of, of whichever piece I'm arranging, because um, I really have to dive into the score. And uh, I think, like, even though I know my arrangements are, are sort of virtuosic, I don't think they're impossible. I think, like, whenever I'm arranging, I'm always thinking about how it's going to fit, for example, in the left hand. Like, is there a good figuring for this, or is it going to be flat out impossible? If it's impossible, I don't I don't write it. So everything I write is possible, um, and and yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun, and I think I always need something on the on the side of my orchestra job, and even on the side of of music, to be frank. So so I think it gives a bit more balance um, because I don't want my whole life to be just orchestra, orchestra, orchestra. Right. I saw a video of the uh, you guys played it. A Tanglewood, I think, the Aquarella, something or another. So I swear that there were a couple times that it got close to veering into Star Wars, but it didn't quite go there fully. Was that intentional, or what was going on there? Well, I think I was just using one one cell of the yeah of the march from from Star Wars. Uh, you know, of course, playing the Boston Pops, I did a lot of John Williams and a lot of Star Wars, so I was clearly influenced. And uh, you know, it's funny we actually just played that that piece. Um, Aquarela do violoncello in, in China, and there was a cello festival there, and I was just, you know, there's a lot of really great cellists who came there, and we we played this piece, and a lot of cellists that I really look up to, and it was funny, like they had such a great time, and they were having so much fun, and uh, it, it was it was really great to share that with them. You know, there's been this one bit where we raise a leg in the French cancan and all that, and and so I think that that's fun. I think you know we we spend so much time being like very serious about what we do and, and I am also um, but then you, you need to let go sometimes and, and just enjoy yourself and I, I think that was part of the reason also when we started the Boston Chile Quality and went so well is people were so surprised that we were having fun because we would add, end every program with a, a medley like Aquarela and, and people were like what? BSO having fun? Smiling? You know they didn't expect that but I think that's what we all are if we have chances to you know let it out. Going back to the, the audition, actually, so you were in the section for um, some years and then the principal position came open and, and you took the audition. I mean, you did an interview before Cello Bello about some of the details of your preparation. There are a couple of things that kind of stuck out to me. One, that you're already kind of at peace with, with the outcome, however it was going to turn out, which sounded like a really 
helpful thing in terms of managing pressure? Because I know sometimes when people are auditioning for their own orchestra, it can go either way. I mean, it could either feel like not much pressure or it could feel like a ton of pressure. Do you remember how you got to that particular headspace in advance? Well, I mean, so first of all, I took the audition twice. So I didn't get it the first time. And for some reason, my section job was the same. I took it twice. But um, I think I got there because, you know, I mean, I had worked very hard for my first audition for principal. And I think when I did that one, I really, really wanted to get it, like really bad. And so, you know, it didn't work out. I mean, anyway, I went far in the audition, but nobody was hired. And so the second time around, well, first of all, I had practiced the music so hard already uh, the year before. You know, it was just a matter of, you know, something I was talking about earlier is getting my routine back back in, you know, my, my physical feelings and all that. And then I was thinking about, like, how much does it really matter if I don't get it? And, of course, I'm lucky because I already have a great job, you know, section in BSO, you know, it's fantastic. I didn't feel, you know, I didn't feel I needed to be principal absolutely in my life, which is a bit ironic, you know. But I, I feel like usually the profile of people in the first chair or people who are, you know, always looking to be principal in some orchestra and climb up, um, to different orchestras, and that was really not my case. And so I felt like if I didn't get the job, I would probably still be in the section of the BSO and be happy there. So I think it's sort of funny to say, but I feel like mentally I was preparing myself to lose because <laughs> I didn't want, to, you know, I didn't want to be bitter because there's there are always stories of people getting bitter because they didn't win a job in the orchestra or something. And I didn't want to be like that. I didn't want to to ruin my my, you know mental stability with an audition. So I was, I was very ready to, to lose. And also I, I do know that, you know, you have to feel free and, and feel relaxed to play well. And if it, it's already a pressure field event and especially, you know, the job was not open for a very long time and, and, and the guy before was famous and all that. So if you start thinking about all this, I think it can be very crippling. And also I try not to think too much about, you know, what the committee may want, because of course I, I know the style of the orchestra and, and I, you know, I may know, you know, the people who are on the committee, but you're, ne- you're never going to please everybody. I don't know what my votes were, but I don't expect I please everybody. So at least you have to be yourself. I think I feel like you owe yourself to play like you want to play, you know. And so that that's that's the danger I feel sometimes with those, you know, major orchestra auditions where people know sort of what the orchestra likes. Then they try to play like that, but then if they don't really believe in it, it's going to sound just like that. It's going to sound like they don't believe in it. And it's probably won't be convincing. And that's, actually, that's one lesson I remember from, from, from Philippe Muller in Paris, that he always said, like, you know, to be convincing, you have to be convinced. And, and I think that that's a good rule of law for anything you play. You know, if you don't really believe in what you're doing, it's, there's no chance it's going to be convincing. So I think that's sort of how letting go. Then there are many sort of funny things I did during the audition. So at, at that audition, I was like, we were doing a coloring book for adults backstage. <laughs> so, you know, because I know, I know how the audition goes. It's long, you know, I had done it the year before. It's like at least five hours in, in the hall and then five times playing. And then if you're playing every time you're between rounds and you're really tiring yourself and, and, and you're, you know, you're going over and over the, the shit and the fingerings and the, you know, and it's, it's a terrifying circle. So I think doing that is sort of took my mind off, you know, the music, plus it's a calming activity. 
so it's like uh, I feel like yeah, I would be like a kid. I would go play my run and then go color a few spaces and then go back playing and 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 so you know just just to help stay calm uh, because I'm, one thing I'm convinced of is that is that there you know there are more people who crumble or or to, who play worse on the division than people who play better. I don't know if I, anyone actually plays better, and also I don't I don't expect myself to play better, and so I think that goes with what I was saying about preparing. To play beautifully, like with your technique, is that you you know, like if you play your normal level, is is gonna be good, and so you don't try too hard. Because usually, when you try hard, you're also taking risks. So, and risk, you know, you have to know which risk to take and not to take. Um, and 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 you know, actually, that I was I was talking with a friend recently, and how about um, someone else, one of my colleagues, actually, who who had been sitting principal. Um, uh, for for a few years, you know, mentioned like oh, I, he feels like he always plays better when he's sick, and I, and and it is that with me too, and I think it has to do with that, you know, you're just happy if you get through it because you're not feeling well, and you probably go back to the basics because you don't have the energy to to focus on all those details and on things, and so that's that's interesting because clearly that's a situation where you let go of expectations, and you're just happy with the most basic level. But that's probably still gonna be okay. And another thing I also I believe about audition is, of course, it's good to practice and prepare. But I think the things that are gonna win you the audition are things that are set in your playing a long time before the audition. So yes, you're learning the music and the notes, but you know at the end people are gonna hear your your sound or your phrasing or, and those things do not happen three months before the audition when you get the program. You know. Um, so in in a way, I think that helps relax too, because you know what's really convincing in your playing is there, is gonna be there, it's not gonna disappear, and that's something I learned over, over time too, because I think I I you know I'm pretty difficult with myself. I always want to get better, but then you have to be aware of what's good about your playing. And I think there's I can't quote it exactly, but there's a quote I think from Piotr Gorski, saying like anyone can can know their weaknesses, but like it, it takes a wise person to know their strengths. And I think that's important to remember when you go on, on stage and any time is to know what's good about you. And so I think that's reassuring to know that this is not going to change. And then you just go out and play. And, and another another image I like is, is for me, I feel like auditions are a bit like a golf tournament. I played a lot of golf. And I feel like, you know, golf tournaments, you know, they always say to stick to the game plan. Like, you don't, you don't try to make more birdies because suddenly someone else is playing or you just stick to your game plan. Because maybe they're going to start making bogeys later, and so I feel like auditions are the same. There are going to be a lot of people who are going to make bogeys everywhere. So just you know, try to stay stable and stick to your game plan, and don't try to overdo it. Just be yourself, and I feel like that's really the safest strategy on stage. Is that what you meant by by knowing what risks to take and which ones not to take? Yes, I mean I'm 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 not going to try on the day of the audition to do something incredible that I have never done before. You know, no way. I that's why I say like I will have prepared before, you know, in the practice room how how to sound beautifully, how to be touching emotionally and how it happens. And that's exactly what I'm gonna do on the, the day of the audition. And I'm gonna try to to be the best I've ever been because that's probably not gonna happen. <laughs> so yeah, I don't think an audition is the best time to take a risk. In the practice room, yes, take them and then see. Maybe there's something you never did before that actually feels comfortable and you can incorporate in your playing, that definitely can happen. But last minute on the day of the audition, I, I don't think so. 
I think it could be tempting to feel like you need to play better than you can play on the day of an audition. You know, you get there, you hear people warming up, and someone tuning just sounds amazing. It's like, oh man, I really need to bring my A plus game today, and to be tempted to do more than you can. But I don't know if it's okay to ask you this, but if you had to give yourself a score for the audition, I mean, I'm assuming it wasn't a hundred or an A plus. Uh, it's hard for me to score myself. I mean, I. You know, I, um, I mean, obviously, obviously it's not bad, but uh, um, I, I think what I know is that some of the excerpts I played, I played exactly like I want to play. And I think some of them were, you know, considered important, like, like Shostakovich symphonies that we were going to record. And so I think if at least in a couple of excerpts you can be exactly like you want to be, then the jury has an idea of what you can sound like. And... I think I made mistakes in all my auditions. I never had a perfect audition. But then we're all human. And that's, you know, that's also something I think you have to be kind to yourself. Is like, we always imagine other people being perfect. And, and, and you know, we have recordings that are perfect. And and we, we hear stories about people who are perfect. But they're just stories. You know, nobody is perfect. Everyone has, you know, failing moments. And and so I think it's important to be to be can to yourself and know that. And I think the committees know that, you know, that's why they allow for mistakes. And, but yeah, of course it's tempting for me too. I remember, you know, both auditions, you know, I would get to my practice room and then on the way I would hear someone else, you know, practice their Dvorak. I'm like, wow, it sounds really good. But of course, everybody's going to sound very good at that level of auditions, but they sound very good in their practice room. And I don't know how it's going to sound in the hall. And, you know, I think it sounds good. Maybe the committee will disagree, you know, so it's, it's, I, I can't pay too much attention to 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 this, and I think it's something also I learned from um, from doing international competitions when I was younger. You know, where you always have that 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 guy who's like playing over and over his piece, and and, and he's like really on it. And uh, I feel like it's those already the guys who make it to the end. That's why I try to save my energy and keep my energy just for the audition time. I think there's this impression that you have to play a perfect round or you have to play a perfect audition to win the job. But the more people I talk to, I think the more I feel like you have to play really well, obviously, but perfection just doesn't happen. And and trying to be too perfect oftentimes uh, is counterproductive. And and actually, you know, I'm curious about your thoughts on, on what happens behind the screen in the sense that I read about this, uh, this football coach, American football coach, Bill Walsh, who coached the 49ers for many years. And and he says that when he was evaluating players, he wanted to see a player's 10 best plays from college and 10 worst plays from college. And and I didn't read further, or maybe it didn't say much more than that. But my, my intuition was that what he's looking for is he wants to find out what's the best that this player is capable of, but also what are the most boneheaded things this player might do for us. And if there's a high ceiling, right? Like if the best plays are pretty awesome and the worst plays are not so bad, then that's pretty nice to know. Whereas if there's great highs, but really awful lows, then you know there's going to be a lot of inconsistency. I mean, do you think something like that might subconsciously maybe be happening behind the screen in terms of what people hear? Uh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, you know, especially if you hear people five times in a row and, and, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know if it was my audition or other auditions. Sometimes I see comments of, of people saying like, "Oh, yeah, so boring." They 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 hire someone who's consistent. And but think about it: Do you really want someone in an important position who's going to crash someday? Who's going to have like a 
like it's gonna really crash everything. Do you really want that? Even if you play like very well, you know, three or four times before, it doesn't matter. You can't have that. It's just not professional, you know. Uh, so yeah, you, you need you need consistency, and your image is very good. Like, how bad is your bad gonna be, um, and and how good is your good? And I think you know you want to have sort of a sort of a small range. I mean, if you have a big range because you get really awesome, that's great. But you definitely don't want too much of the bad stuff. That that's for sure. Yeah. I also read that you didn't practice on the day before the audition. Um, and not to be too much of a nerd about time, but but how much time did you have off the instrument before the, uh, do you know what I mean? Like, so from the time that you started warming up on the day of to the last time you touched the instrument, maybe 24, 36 hours before, do, do you know how much time there actually was? Because I'm curious about that, but also I'm curious what the experience was like for you, knowing that you weren't going to stress yourself out by you know, woodshedding the day before, like, was it freeing or did do you feel a little bit uncomfortable being away from the cello or how was that for you? No, I mean, I was very happy to be away from the cello. No, I mean, I, I think, that, I mean, there was probably at least 30 hours, you know, because it was the day plus the night. And, but, you know, we, this week, that week we were recording Shostakovich 4, which is a very big symphony and very tiring physically. And, you know, to the point that I was thinking like, oh, maybe they, did the audition that week to make sure that nobody from the orchestra gets a job, you know, because it was so tiring. Um, and so, you know, I, I knew I needed my energy on the big day. Uh, I also knew I was prepared. Like, I didn't feel I was going to do anything miraculous the day before the audition in my preparation. So I wanted my muscles to be relaxed. I wanted my mind to be a bit fresh. Because sometimes I notice sometimes too also when do I play best and sometimes I play best when I didn't touch the cello all day and then I just show up and I play. Um, <laughs> and and then, so what do we practice, right? But um, so, no, I felt very comfortable about not touching it. And to be honest, um, I had decided I was not going to take that audition again. Like if they did not hire, I was not going to take a third audition. So I was so happy to be done practicing for this audition. <laughs> so I was very happy to let it go. And then whatever happens, happens the next day. And, and, you know, I, I want to add also, we're talking about perfection. Like, what is perfection? Like, perfection for who? Like, everybody has their own criteria for perfection. Clearly, my criteria will be different from other people. Um, uh, so you, you can't let anyone decide if you're perfect or not, or if you're good or not. Or So I, I think all this, you know, helps relax a bit, you know, about the, the feeling of being judged. Uh, that I think it's good to try to erase as much as we can. Because... You know the committee listening. They're all musicians. If you if you play beautifully, if you play with your heart, and they're going to like it. You know, even if they may disagree with our figuring you did or a chef that's not the way it used to be done before. As long as it's honest and and, and touching and musical, I think that's really what you need to to bring across. And in my experience, sitting on committees, also the people who win usually play this way. So so yeah, the mistakes don't matter, and there's no there's no standard for perfection that we should be trying to get to. Well, one last question, um, a tough one might be, uh, so if anyone listening to this was to be passing through Boston and uh, wanted to find a good bakery, I understand that you've started getting into baking. Where, where's your go-to bakery for for carbs and, and baked goods? 
so that's a tough question because one one reason I started to bake is that I couldn't find Boston's or French pastries. I remember from home. I think there's. A, I mean, I like a clear flour bread in, in Brooklyn, which actually is labeled a European style bakery. Um, you know, then for American stuff, I mean, the flour bakery is good, but it's 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 like very American for me. It's a bit a bit too sweet usually for my taste. Um, so I mean, my friends are pushing me to open my shop, but that's not going to happen. I don't have the time. <laughs> um, so yeah, I would say clear flour bread is probably my my go-to. Okay, is there is there a good? Um, and my kids keep saying that I should stop pronouncing baguette incorrectly, but it's such a habit. I don't know how to pronounce it the right way. Uh, is there a good place to get a baguette or, or croissant in in Boston? Um. Well, I mean, croissant for sure, clear flour bread, they're good. I haven't tried their baguettes. I, I'm, I'm never really convinced by baguettes in this country, like ever. Um, so I don't know if it's something with the ingredients or, or, or the way it's done, because in Paris it's so easy to get a good baguette and a good croissant. Um, what's so different sure. What's different about, like, what, what is a good baguette? Like, is it just like the crustiness or is it the chewy? Like, what, how, what's, what's different? For me, like, a good baguette is like, it's crunchy on the outside, it's light. And airy on the inside, yeah, you know, crunchy but not too crunchy, and 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 I feel like usually in the states it's a bit too dense, and I feel like it's more successful here with like artisan breads like uh, sourdoughs and stuff like that. Those are really good here, uh, but baguettes is, is not quite there in my opinion. But maybe I'm asking for too much detail and perfection. You know, it's possible. <laughs> maybe it's the water. I, I read that uh, they did some tests with. Um using new york water to make pizza uh-huh. dough versus water from other cities and the new york water just led to more new york like pizza crusts than than water from other places so maybe there's something in the water in paris very possible yeah. <laughs> great well thank you so much for, for taking the time to chat about some of this stuff you can get the full transcript of this week's chat plus links to various things that came up in conversation at bulletproofmusician.com slash blog <laughs>